Scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Proverbs, chapter 5. If you're using the Blue Pew Bibles, you can find it on page 530. Proverbs 5, verses 1 to 23. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, we thank you for this morning's text. And Lord, we know that everything in the word is profitable for us. And so we pray now that you, by your spirit, you will teach us what is profitable, that you, that you may um, edify us with the preaching of your word, all for your glory. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, friends, I think today's sermon is yet another apologetic for text-driven preaching as opposed to topic-driven because we've already said before that text-driven preaching refers to that practice that churches do where they systematically just preach through books of the Bible, just preaching and unpacking whatever is there. And I can pretty much guarantee if not for that, if not for a commitment to that kind of preaching, you wouldn't be hearing a sermon on Proverbs 5 because this is an uncomfortable passage to preach. It was uncomfortable just studying for this sermon. The, the fact is, Proverbs 5 is an erotic chapter. It has highly sensual language. Some commentaries I read this week just 
made me blush as to how detailed they got with the, uh, these verses. As my point is that you're only hearing this sermon because we are committed to preaching through books of the Bible and just preaching whatever is there. If this is God's inspired word, then it is profitable for us. It is for our edification. And I need to preach it to you, no matter how uncomfortable it might be for me to be unpacking this. So let's get into Proverbs 5. Last week we were in chapter 4. We saw there a continuation of the two-path theology that's been so prevalent in Proverbs. Basically, it's saying that there are two paths that you can take in life. Uh, There are two ways to live your life. You can take the path of wisdom or the path of folly. Now, this binary approach to life is expanded in, uh, later on in chapters uh, 8 and 9 with an imagery now of two women. And so later on, you're going to read about Lady Wisdom, and then there is Lady Folly. So you can choose to follow after one or the other, depending on which path you take. At the end of that path, you're going to end up at the house of Lady Wisdom or the house of Lady Folly. Now, last week in chapter 4, we sat in on a homeschooling lesson where it concluded with the father telling his son to not look to the right or to the left, but to just stay straight on the path that he was set on, to stay straight on the ancient path that his father, his grandfather, and countless other saints have taken. It's called the way of wisdom, the path of wisdom. Now, we said last week that Though this path is straight and it's pretty straightforward to walk on, yet there are many detours, very appealing and seemingly gratifying detours branching off of this way of wisdom. And the path of promiscuity is one of those very detours. And that's what Proverbs 5 is warning against. It's warning against the path of promiscuous sexual behavior. Specifically, it's going to be warning about adultery, about breaking your marriage covenant with a forbidden lover. But, you know, the teachings here would apply not just to married people, but also to unmarried people and to really any sexual activity that is conducted outside of the bond of marriage. That's what Proverbs 5 is about. So one of the main emphases we're going to see this morning in this chapter is on marital fidelity, uh, the stresses on marital monogamy, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, a one flesh union till death do us part. Now, there's no doubt that this chapter's immediate concern is about our lifelong faithfulness to our spouse. But I want you to see that the underlying bigger concern in Proverbs 5 is our lifelong faithfulness to wisdom, to lady wisdom. And that's what connects this particular chapter with the book of Proverbs as a whole. And so what this means is that this morning you can expect a lot of talk uh, about sexual promiscuity, about sexual purity, and about sexual pleasures to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. But I'm also going to try to connect all of that to our bigger concern about breaking covenant with God and pursuing sin and folly and going down a very self-destructive path that really leads to nothing good. So we're going to talk specifically about marriage and sex within marriage, but I want to expand it further. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to be looking at three things. We're going to be looking at first 
the deceptive charm of promiscuity. Second, the destructive consequences of promiscuity. And third, the defensive course away from the path of promiscuity. So, let's get into this. Let's start in verses 1 to 6. That's our first section. And we're going to consider the deceptive charm of promiscuity. The chapter begins with the father continuing his instructions with his son, exhorting his son to to listen to wisdom because it's going to help him keep discretion. It's going to help him guard knowledge. Now, that mention there in verse 2 of your lips guarding knowledge has a double meaning because it could refer to your ability to continue speaking wisely. But the very next verse reminds us that lips are not just used for speaking, but they're also used for kissing. So in verse 3, we're introduced to the forbidden woman. Look in verse 3, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Now that word forbidden is literally translated strange woman. To to describe her as strange doesn't mean that that she's weird. Um, It means strange as in strange in regards to legal or social customs of that day. She's basically acting outside of social norms. That's what's strange. And so it's inferred here that she's either an adulteress or a prostitute. That's why she's considered strange or forbidden. Now, before we continue on looking at this uh, section, I think it's important to say that a man could also be considered strange or forbidden in the exact same way. I know it seems, as you read this, pretty one-sided. It sounds as if Proverbs is accusing women of being predatory, of, of, of them being to blame for a man's sexual misconduct. So I understand if this passage, this chapter, can be hard for some of you to read. But that's why we need to read Scripture in its context. And we have to remember that everything in Proverbs should be read in the context of a father giving instruction to his young adult son. And so that's the reason why a forbidden woman is singled out and not a forbidden man. Every principle, though, that is taught here would still be applicable to men and to women. So let's, let's make that clear, and let's not draw any false conclusions that, that, uh, that either women are to blame for a man's lust or that the Bible is somehow regressive or sexist in its depiction of women. Instead, let's just be careful that we read the Bible in context. And so, in context, what is the Father saying here? Well, he's saying that promiscuous sexual encounters have a deceptive charm. They promise sweet pleasures, but they hide a bitter aftertaste. It's like chocolate-covered licorice. Have you ever had that chocolate-covered licorice? I mean, who invented that? What, what, what cruel person decided that, that I want to put, put this bitter, disgusting licorice inside a, a wrapping of sweet attractive chocolate, but, but somehow it's out there, and, and you, think, you think you're going to be eating something sweet, but just wait. Just wait until what you get in the aftertaste. Well, listen to verses 3 and 4, and, and it's something similar. Verse 3, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, 
and her speech is smoother than oil. Verse 4, but in the end, in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. So her kisses, they taste sweet, and her speech, it sounds smooth, but it's all a lie. Instead of sweet, she's actually bitter. Instead of smooth, she's actually sharp and biting. This, my friends, is how sexual temptation works. It holds out to you a promise of great pleasure. And so you jump into it, you jump into forbidden sexual experiences and encounters with great expectation, and it does feel good. It is pleasurable, otherwise it wouldn't be very tempting, but the pleasures of sexual sins are very fleeting. They're fleeting. They, they, they quickly leave a bitter taste in your mouth, leaving you unsatisfied, leaving you wanting more, trapped in this cycle of seeking more and more and more. I'm sure none of this is news to any of you. We've all experienced the fleeting pleasures of promiscuity. We know the promises that the forbidden woman or man or website we, we know that what they have to offer to us are lies. We know that they're going to leave a bitter taste in our mouth. We know these forbidden pleasures fail to satisfy, and yet, and yet we continue pursuing them anyways. And that, my friends, is the definition of folly, of foolishness repeating the same behavior, knowing its perilous outcome, but somehow convincing ourselves that it's going to be different this time, that maybe something's going to change. The path of promiscuity and the path of folly, I hope you see, are one and the same. Now, if we keep on reading, the Father goes on to warn that if you go down this path, the bitter aftertaste is really the least of your worries. What waits for you at the end of the path of promiscuity is death itself. Look at verse 5. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. That's basically in uh, the Hebrew the understanding of just the, 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 the place of the dead. The father is warning that a relationship with the forbidden woman leads to death. Later on in Proverbs chapter 7, verses 22 to 23, he issues a very similar warning. Listen to this. All at once he follows her, again, the forbidden woman, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. You know, it's been said that sex is like fire. In its proper place, it's great. It's enjoyable. When fire is, is in the fireplace, it can keep you warm. It can light up a room. But once it gets out of the fireplace, it can burn a whole house down. The point is that sex is meant to be enjoyed. It's supposed to be pleasurable. So enjoy it in its proper place, within the covenant bond of marriage. But once sex gets outside of marriage, then it can burn you. It can destroy you. It can cost you your life. Friends, that's the father's warning to his son, and really his warning 
to all of us. Now, if we keep on reading in the text, the Father expands his warning against promiscuity by now describing for us its destructive consequences. Here's the second section we're going to be looking at, starting in verse 7. The Father here resorts back to his two-path theology, and he warns to stay off the path of the promiscuous. Look at verse 8. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near that door of her house. Stay off her path. Stay off the path of the forbidden woman, the path of promiscuity. And he goes on to list negative consequences if you go down that path. And one of the main ones is a loss of vitality and strength. Listen to verses 9 to 10 again. Don't go down this path, verse 9, lest you give your honor to others in your, in your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. Now that word honor there in verse 9 means literally splendor or majesty. It can also refer to a person's strength, a person's vitality. It's used like that elsewhere in Scripture. And so contextually, I think it should be read more that way. If you stay on the path of promiscuity, you risk losing your vitality, your strength. Your best years will be spent on chasing after illicit pleasures that only leave you with a bitter aftertaste and all of your strength sapped. The father goes on to allude also of a loss of productivity or a loss of material wealth. In verse 10, it speaks of your labors. That means the fruit of all of your hard work going to the house of a foreigner. By that, it doesn't mean uh, to, to an immigrant. It's not referring to a foreigner in that sense. By that, he means to a foreign woman. And that same word, foreign woman, is found later on in verse 20. The ESV translates it as an adulteress. You might say in your footnote, it also uh, it literally is foreign woman. And in that verse, verse 20, it's paralleled with a forbidden woman. And so here um, in verse 10, the house of a foreigner is the house of a forbidden lover, or really any forbidden source of sexual pleasure. So verse 10 could be a reference to you squandering your resources on reckless living, much like, much like the prodigal son did in Luke chapter 15. In that story, we're told that he wasted his inheritance spending it on prostitutes, spending it on forbidden women. Now, the merciless or the strangers that's referred to in verses 9 to 10, that could refer to a husband offended by an adulterous affair and any of his family members who share in his grievance. There were legal consequences in those days for adultery. And you can just think about it today. Just imagine how a man's wealth can be sucked dry going to hush money, or to spending it on lawsuits, divorce settlements, ongoing alimony payments. You can see how this is very applicable. But more generally, more generally, these verses apply to just a basic loss of productivity. We can get so preoccupied with forbidden pleasures that we just become less productive in our studies or in our work, it affects our minds, it affects our concentration, it begins to show in our grades, in our GPA, in our poor performance evaluations. Little do our teachers or supervisors know what's really causing our poor performance. 
It's a promiscuous lifestyle, sometimes lived very privately. Look at where all of this leads. Look, it all leads to verse 11. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. If you go down this path long enough, your body is going to give out. A promiscuous lifestyle has a very short shelf life. It's not good for the body. It cuts short the length of your life. But, you know, this imagery here in verse 11 of your flesh giving out, of of, of you groaning, groaning in the wake of forbidden sexual encounters, that brings to mind for me a very relevant, a very connected passage. I'm thinking of Psalm 32. If you're familiar with Psalm 32, it was written by King David, and it was written after his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And it was written after he spent, at a minimum, at least nine months in stubborn unrepentance. And we know that because by the time he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, by the, by the time he was led to repentance by the grace of God, the baby that was conceived by his promiscuity had already been born. And so during those nine months, you would think that David would be relieved that his cover-up seemed to be working. Bathsheba's husband is dead. She's now married to David. Their baby is born, and David is still on the throne. You think that he would be relieved. But listen to how he sounds as he writes Psalm 32, verse 3 to 4. Verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David is lamenting how silence over his sin, how his refusal to confess and to repent has led to physical and emotional turmoil. His inner agony could be felt in his bones. He describes it in verse 4 as a loss of physical strength. He was exhausted. His vitality had been sapped as in the heat of summer. And note carefully how he's groaning under these consequences before he even feels the physical and financial effects of his sin. Remember, at this point, his health is presumably, presumably fine. His baby is still alive. His kingdom is still intact. And yet something lies heavy on him. Something is sapping his strength. Something is causing his bones to waste away on the inside. That's something, my friends is guilt, the guilt of his sexual sins. Guilty feelings are psychological, but as you see here, they have physiological effects. Guilt is a crushing feeling that weighs heavy on your conscience. You feel like you are always carrying around all day long a heavy pack of weights on your back. And, and every day you continue in sin and unrepentance, it's like another 10-pound weight is added to your pack and it weighs you down just a little bit more. The longer you keep silent, the more exhausting life gets. And add to your guilt feelings of jealousy, hurt, 
loneliness, regret, you get to that point where you just want to give up, where you just want to lay around and just groan. David felt it. Now, this is important for us to stress how guilt can be a cause of these things. Because if the warnings against going down this path of promiscuity, if they only had to do with the loss of health or wealth or a a, a prolonged life, then you might be able to point to certain examples of very promiscuous people who seem to be healthy, wealthy, and they die at an old age. And you're wondering, well, they don't seem to be experiencing any, any, any outward consequences for their promiscuity. But don't discount the psychological effects of sin, the guilt, the regret, the shame, because they are very real, and they have very real effects on a person, even if you can't see them outwardly and visibly. The father, he goes on in verses 12 to 14, and he tells his son, son, if you don't heed these warnings, if you insist on on learning these lessons the hard way through personal, painful experience, just know that at at, at the end of the path of promiscuity, all you're going to find is shame and regret. There's going to be a day when you will regret your actions. Look at verse 12. There's going to be a day, and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. Verse 14, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. In other words, keep going down this path, and you will regret the day you didn't listen the day you despised the discipline of your parents, or you despised the reproof of your spiritual mentor. Because one day, the sins that you commit in private will be made public. I mean, just, just read the paper. Just watch the news, and gonna, there's going to be another tragic tale of someone who indulged in private sexual sin, who wallowed in forbidden lust under the cover of darkness. But time and time again, in every case, light eventually breaks through, exposes sin, and leads to public shaming. We've seen it in the news. We've seen it happening all the time. This is how David's story turned out. His private sins with Bathsheba, just think about it. They're now public record. His private sins have been recorded in Scripture. It's been, this book has been translated into, into thousands of languages, distributed all around the world. It's now public knowledge. That's how David's story turned out. But friends, public shaming is not how David's story ended. You know, the father in Proverbs 5, if you think about it, knew exactly how David's story ended because his own life story was very much connected and tied up to it. Remember, this is Solomon writing to his son, passing along the lessons that he learned from his father, David. His mother was Bathsheba. The child of that adulterous affair was his brother, He had, Solomon had, a front row seat to see his father's kingdom divided, to see his father and his sins become a public spectacle 
Solomon was well-versed in his father's famous sins and public shame. But Solomon was also very familiar with his father's famous confessions of sin and his public displays of heart repentance. The words of contrition that we read in verses 12 to 14, you never know. They could very well have been the words of David that Solomon heard his own father say. If if we look back to Psalm 32, verse 5, David is even more explicit in his remorse and his repentance. This is Psalm 32, 5. It says, I acknowledge my sin to you, O Lord. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So this is where... I want to encourage those of you who feel very sharply the shame of your sexual sins. I, I know you feel like you're on the, on the brink of utter ruin, but I want to tell you there is hope. If you refuse to cover your sins any longer, if you confess them to the Lord, there is a gospel promise of blessed forgiveness, where God is going to be the one who covers over your sin and shame. I mean, just think about that prodigal son that we just mentioned earlier, the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Just think about this, this young man who squandered his inheritance on the path of promiscuity. He finally comes to his senses while he's wallowing in the muck and mire of his own shame. And he says to himself, I am on the brink of utter ruin. I didn't listen to the voice of wisdom, and now I have come to the bitter end on the path of promiscuity. But I have a father. I I have a home. What am I doing here? Why stay in my sin? Why stay in my shame? And so that prodigal, he got up. And he went home. And while a long way off, the story says his father ran to him with open arms. His son's face was probably caked in mud and shame, but the father kissed him. And his clothes, they were probably just tattered rags. He was covered in filth and sin, but the father covered him with his favorite robe. The father didn't shame his son No, he took that shame and he covered it. And then he rejoiced over his son who was dead but now is alive, who was lost but now is found. And maybe some of you, maybe some of you are still a long way off from home. Maybe you're stalling for some reason. But why? What are you waiting for? Are are you waiting until you can clean yourself up a bit? Are you waiting to see some improvement in your life? I think you're missing the whole point of the story. Uh, the world might write you off. The world may call you damaged good, goods and say that you just deserve to stay in the gutter. But God the Father, he runs to you with open arms ready to embrace you all because Jesus His beloved son 
took up our sin and shame on his cross, and he died in our stead so that you and I could be received back home. So will you come home? Will you come home? He'll wash you. He'll clean you. He'll give you a new name. He'll give you a new reputation. You'll be a new creation in Christ. Just come home. It's time to come home. Friends, we've considered the deceptive charm of promiscuity. We've considered its destructive consequences. Now let's, let's focus on our last section. Let's focus on the defensive course away from the path of promiscuity. You know, you probably heard it said before that the best defense is a good offense. Well, that's basically what the father is telling his son here in verses 15 to 20. He's saying the best defense against the temptations of forbidden sex is a wholesome enjoyment of marital sex. Listen to uh, verses 15 to 17. This is the uncomfortable part, but listen, this is God's word. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. So here we have this metaphor where sex is like water. And the cistern or the well symbolizes your own spouse. And the whole point is that your sexual desires, your springs, they shouldn't be scattered abroad among others, but they should be directed exclusively towards your spouse in the privacy of your home. Or just go back to that other metaphor we used earlier, that sex is like fire. As long as it stays in the fireplace then stoke that fire, fan that fire, keep it hot, and it's going to bless you. It's going to bless your marriage. Just don't let it get out of that fireplace or it'll destroy you. It'll burn you. Listen to verses 18 and 19. This is where the father gets direct and he outright celebrates the pleasures of marital sex. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now, friends, the connection here is obvious. To drink from your own cistern or to drink from your own well means to find sexual delight in your wife or in your husband and in no one else. Now, the father goes on to use some imagery that, I know, it kind of fails to carry over into our modern context, right? Describing a woman as a lovely deer, or quite literally, uh, it says a graceful mountain goat. The ESV translator is like, oh yeah, that's not going to work. They changed the dough. Uh, but it's, it's a mountain goat he's talking about. I know, it just doesn't really do it for us, right? But I think you get the drift. The father is celebrating the nakedness of his wife. The man is, is celebrating the nakedness of his, of his wife, including her breasts, and he does so without any shame. And, and you know, the fact that we get squeamish as we are reading this verse and we're, we're talking about it just goes to show how, how we have allowed shameful, how we have allowed our sinful shame to redefine sex as something that's embarrassing something that's uncomfortable to talk about. 
But sex is a holy gift of God given to a husband and a wife for their joy and for their delight. There is nothing shameful, there's nothing embarrassing about sex enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. You know that exhortation there? To be intoxicated always in her love, to be inebriated in her love. It's, it's, it's quite interesting because the same word is used later on in verse 23. There, look, look at verse 23, where it describes someone being led astray by folly. That's the same word. So this Hebrew word has a wide range of meaning, so that even though it typically has a negative connotation, because, you know, to be, to be led astray um, by folly, that, that's not a good thing, but to be led astray or to be intoxicated can be a good thing in the right context. And so think about it. When you're led astray by falsehood or led astray by error, you're so caught up in it, you're no longer thinking straight anymore. You're not, you're not using your mind rightly. Well, here, in the context of the marriage bed where it's holy, the Bible is saying to get so caught up in loving your spouse, to be so intoxicated and inebriated in marital love to the point that you're no longer thinking straight. You're drunk in love with your spouse. And again, the fact that it sounds weird for me to say that probably just goes to show that, that our view of sex is still too low. You know, and that's what the world accuses us of. You do realize that, right? The world will say that Christians have a very low view of sex. Now, secular culture, on the other hand, you know, the world is going to say that they have a, a very high view. They, they, they claim to be sex positive. They would say that, that they've reclaimed the goodness of sex over the very oppressive and, and negative view that we've inherited from our puritanical past. That's the typical, typical narrative you're going to hear. But I would argue that instead of elevating sex, our sex-crazed culture has actually degraded it. I'm sure we're living in a day and age where people are more free to talk about sex and celebrate sex, where, yes, in generations past, it was treated as very taboo. It was, it was treated as something dirty. It was a, a very hush-hush subject. But, you know, just liberating people to talk more openly at, about sex has not redeemed or restored any dignity to sex. Sure, the culture will say that sex is, is nothing to be ashamed about, but they mean that in the same way that eating a meal is nothing to be ashamed about. Our culture treats sex like hunger or like any other human appetite. If you feel hungry, you eat. If you feel sexy, you have sex. And, and just as you wouldn't eat one dish for the rest of your life, it's not natural to have only one sex partner for the rest of your life. Our culture says that having lots of sex with lots of partners is natural. It's nothing to be ashamed about. But C.S. Lewis argues in Mere Christianity that we should be ashamed in the way that our sexual appetite as a culture has disproportionately grown way beyond our need. He says, imagine visiting a planet where people pay money to watch someone eat a mutton chop or a slab of bacon, or where people 
ogle pictures of food in a magazine, or we can modernize that a little bit and, and say where people stare lustfully at pictures or videos of food on the internet, we would conclude that the appetite for food on this planet was seriously messed up. And yet that's the exact same thing that we do with sex. Our culture claims to be sex positive, but instead it has degraded sex and turned it into a base craving and a disproportionate one at that. And that's why I so appreciate Proverbs 5. Because here we have a passage that views sex like it's good, but it doesn't treat sex like it's God. It doesn't make sex out to be something that's going to satisfy your deepest need to be loved and accepted because that's God's job. Sex is his gift to a husband and wife. And when the marriage bed is honored and rightly enjoyed to the praise of God and to the renewal of the marital union, then that, my friends, is the best defense against sexual temptation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul makes a very similar argument when he says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That's euphemism that they should be having marital sex. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that, listen, Satan may not, be, may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So that's very similar to Proverbs 5. Now, I know that this leaves the unmarried folk here in the room feeling like they're missing a key weapon in this fight against sin and temptation. But that's why Paul goes on in chapter 7, verse 8, to say, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But, verse 9, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so, friends, that means if the pull towards promiscuity is so strong that maybe you should marry, especially if you're unmarried and yet you are still sexually active with your partner. You should marry. But let's be clear. Getting married will resolve your sin problem of having sex outside of marriage, but getting married won't solve your disobedience problem that led you to have sex outside of marriage in the first place. The solution there, the solution to your disobedience problem is found in our passage in verse 21. Look in verse 21 with me. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Friends, the strongest weapon against promiscuity is not a satisfying marriage bed. Sure, it's going to help, but the strongest weapon against promiscuity, really against any sin and disobedience, is living what the theologians call corum deo. That's Latin for in the presence of God or before the face of God. 
That's what verse 21 reminds us of, that all of our ways, all of our paths are lived out before the eyes of the Lord, before his face, Coram Deo. And that's not meant to scare Christians into obedience. That's meant to comfort Christians, knowing that God is there, his presence is there, his face is there on every path we take. Married Christians can be comforted, knowing that the Lord is watching over their marriage, but knowing that the Lord is there to help them keep their marriage bed pure, knowing that his eyes are pleased when they enjoy sex together as husband and wife. And unmarried Christians can likewise be comforted, knowing that the Lord is watching over you in your pursuit of purity, knowing that he's there to satisfy your deepest need to be loved and accepted, and knowing that his eyes are pleased when you enjoy the fullness of life in Christ, even without marriage and sex within marriage. Living this way, living consciously before the eyes of the Lord is how you stay on the way of wisdom and how you avoid the path of promiscuity. Father, thank you for teaching us this word. I pray, Lord, that you would keep us faithful, keep us on the straight path, keep us pure as you remain faithful to us and as you Prove yourself worthy of our devotion. Lord, we give you all of ourselves. We give you our whole heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.